and welcome to the Classical Stuff You Should Know podcast, the podcast of Veritas Academy's teachers teaching you classical stuff. We may actually not be officially affiliated with Veritas Academy, uh, but we both work there. They may decide to disown us that this isn't kind of the That's kind true. of thing they want they representing could, the school. They could disavow us like the IMF. Um, my, I am Graham Donaldson, and I'm here with my colleague... Uh, AJ Hannenberg. And we are your fellow podcasters. If you are listening to this in listener land, which you are, it has this may seem like the magic of podcasts. But for us, it's been a while since we've podcasted. Yeah, we've... I think it's been a couple of months since we've recorded. Since then, school has started, so if we both sound a little haggard and scratchy, it's because we both taught four classes today. That's right. If our, uh, 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 if our um, attention span drops or if we uh, sort of start bickering with one another. Or struggle for words <laughs> or struggle whatever. For words. It's because we're back into the swing of school. <laughs> I just said you... struggle for words or whatever. Or whatever. Nailed it. Um, but for you, this is just the next episode that you've clicked on your feverish listening to our podcast. So you haven't come here to listen to us banter. You've come here for the classical things that you should know. So let's get into it. Our topic for today, AJ, mm-hmm. is metaphors. What is a metaphor? How do we use metaphors? And how are the, they these great interpretive tools that we can have in our toolbox in order to analyze literature and ultimately uh, be use it to study scripture as well because it's, it's a necessary tool for studying scripture. They are the roundly abused things of all students who want to say something good in class. That is true. I think it's a metaphor. It's, it's probably not. It's if- a metaphor. No. No, it's not. Okay, well, let's get into actually what a metaphor is. So metaphor, definition. If we're going to use the common topic of definition, let's talk about um, what it is made up of. Um, so the metaphor is under the genus of literary device. And if we divide it into, our, into, three part, into its parts, it has three parts. Uh, a metaphor is made up with a tenor. It is made up of a vehicle. And then a metaphor has a turn. So how that works is... Um, a metaphor has a has a tenor. So if let's let's just use a simple metaphor. So if I said AJ is a lion, I've created a metaphor. Um, in a very in, in four simple words, I have said something about AJ. Um, but we need to know certain things about lions for what I've said about AJ to come true. So first of all, we have the tenor. And that is the thing being spoken about in the metaphor. So I the, always knew I was a tenor. You already always knew you were a tenor. Uh, you have a beautiful singing voice. I don't. Um, so in, in the metaphor, AJ is a lion. The tenor is AJ. I'm saying something about AJ. And then in the metaphor, we have a vehicle. And the vehicle is the image or the series of images or an ongoing repeated thing in the metaphor um, that is that you're wrapping the tenor in in order to say something more about uh, the tenor. So the vehicle is the image that is used. And then the turn is the thing, the sort of deeper thing that you've said about the tenor by associating it with the vehicle. So for example, in the metaphor, AJ is a lion, we start thinking about all the qualities of AJ, like nobility and kingliness and... Uh, ferocity, and maybe even a little bit of fear and danger. These are all true things that we can say about A.J. Hannenberg. Um, And I've captured all of that by saying that A.J. is a lion. Um, Vehicles only work when people know 
when people sort of have a shared understanding of the of the vehicle being used. So for example, if I said AJ is a lion and I said it to a bunch of British school children, they are also going to have the connotation of uh, national pride associated with lions because lions are s- symbolic of England. They have the three lions on their on their jerseys. Uh, the three lion is closely associated with with Britain. But we here in in uh, America, we wouldn't have that necessarily that association. It would have to be if I said AJ is a bald eagle, then people would be like America, yeah, AJ, woo, and then shooting guns in the air and and uh, and there'd be some other connotations that come with that. I am rare, yeah. If you, yeah, that's that's all I got. Yeah. So yeah. Rare, so uh, American rare. Those sorts of things. Right. So they need to have shared connotations for the vehicle to land. Mm-hmm. But then you have the turn, and then the turn is all of those deeper things that you can say about somebody. So in our very simple example, AJ is a lion, I have just sort of ascribed and described various characteristics to you. If you turn that around and I said, this lion is AJ, then we start ascribing to a specific lion characteristics that we know of AJ. Um, a good friend. Um, loves to dance. Uh, uh, a DJ, uh, this lion enjoys rock climbing, things like that. Um, and so uh, you got to be careful. So when you're analyzing metaphors, you got to know what's the tenor, what's the actual thing that's being spoken about, and then the vehicle and how mushing those two things together uh, uh, does it actually produce something that's um, sort of interesting. So I have a really good example. Metaphors can get really complicated. So the one that I said, AJ is a lion, is very short and very easy to understand. But metaphors can get a lot more complicated, and they can span huge sections of stories. So it's very frequent in a novel that you can have all of this buildup or all of these sort of little side stories uh, going on in the lives of characters. And then you realize the thing that is happening in that story is a metaphor for something greater. When you have a story that is entirely a metaphor— we usually call that, I think I'm right on this, we call it an allegory. So an allegory is a story that is like one metaphor, and it usually means that there's, there are certain specific parts ascribed to it. And typically in an allegory, there is a one-to-one connection between the thing being discussed and the thing being represented, right? So if I say, uh, an easy example would be the Pilgrim's Progress. Mm-hmm. His name is Christian. He represents a Christian. And then he's carrying a burden. He has a burden. It's sin. And everybody he meets has a one-to-one relation to something else within that metaphor. That doesn't always happen. I think there can be allegories besides that. But I think that's why C.S. Lewis says his book Narnia is not an allegory because everything that happens in Narnia is not a one-to-one connection with something else. The beavers don't represent anything in connection with... Uh, good, hard-working Protestants. No? Uh, Busy little beavers and, like, work ethic? Yeah, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's a stretch. Okay. I think it's a stretch at best. So, I mean, there are there are metaphors there for, for certain, mm-hmm. but I, I don't... Th- that, that one would not be an allegory. Cool. Yeah, so uh, you can have metaphors that span great uh, blocks of text. Um, there can be metaphors that we understand because we understand lionness and we've got this cultural understanding about what makes up a lion but then there can be metaphors that are sort of more contained in the book and you need to know earlier parts of the book to be able to understand the metaphor later parts in the book i'm going to give you an example from romeo and juliet 
Uh, it's a book that when I started teaching it, I thought I didn't want to teach it because it was the stereotypical high school book I read in high school. You I read it in high school. Everyone reads it and in it high school. And it was poorly taught to me. And in my mind, it was just like the bad high school book. But now that I've gotten through it um, many, many times, um, this book sort of continues to provide some really cool stuff. So in Act 2, Scene 3, um, Romeo has met Juliet, and we are introduced to the character of Father Lawrence. And Father Lawrence is gathering flowers at the beginning of the act. Oh, y'all, and y'all got the in here? Yeah, we'll clean up. You never know what's going to happen yep. in podcast land. Um, all sorts of crazy things can happen. Anyway. We, we just had our office guru come in and see if we we're going to close up. That's right. Yep. So um, high budget podcast. Mm-hmm. So in act two, scene three, we have uh, Father Lawrence uh, and he's picking flowers and he's sort of musing to himself as he's picking these flowers and talking about the heart of man. And as he picks up flowers, uh, he is... He is re- counting to himself he's using them for he's going to eventually use them for medicine and he's saying to himself that as he picks up these flowers he's recounting that they can be both used for medicine and poison depending on how he uses it and this is what he says for not so vile that on the earth doth live but to the earth some special good doth give for aught so good but strained from that fair use, revolts from true birth, stumbling on, ab- on abuse. Virtue itself turns vice, being misapplied, and vice sometimes by action dignified. And he's saying that uh, these, these elements can be used both as a medicine to heal and as a poison to hurt. And, it's, and it just it has to do with the person who is using them to understand it which is itself already a really interesting metaphor. But then he extends it, and Romeo enters the room, and Father Lawrence continues to talk about the plant, but he's also making reference to this sort of hot-blooded young guy that's come in. Within the infant rind of this weak flower, poison hath residence and medicine power. For this being smelt with that part cheers each part. Being tasted stays all senses with the heart. Two such opposed kings encamp them still, still in man as well as herbs, grace and rude will. And where the worser is predominant, full soon canker death eats up that plant. And so what Father Lawrence is saying... So wait, what were the two things that were dominant in man? Can you read those again? So he says, in man as well as herbs, grace and rude will. And where the worser, rude, rude will... will is predominant, full soon the canker death eats up the plant, eats up the man. So he's saying that just as plants have within them these uh, liquids that can be distilled and used for medicine to heal or poison to kill, Father Lawrence is saying, so too in the heart of man do we have powers, do we have sort of essences, uh, grace and rude will that can be used for medicine or can be used uh, for death, and it has. And the, if if that rude will is bigger, is more in the heart of the person, then the canker is not only going to eat up the plant, but is also going to kind of spread pestilence and death. And the thing about a it being able to be used for medicine would that mean that the medicine is for others or for the the health of the man? It seems like it would be for others because if he's discussing the plant mm-hmm. and the plant is like the man, well, the plant is meant for medicine for the community. So, I guess. Romeo, in that sense, would have been 
Like if, if he had grace more than he had rude will, he would have been a medicine for his community. That's right. And so Father Lawrence is saying that in the heart of Romeo lies the capacity to like heal others or to hurt others. And in and of itself, that's already a pretty great metaphor, but it extends itself because later on in the scene, Father Lawrence says that he is going to use Romeo's marriage and love with Juliet to try to cure and bring the two families back together. And so Father Lawrence... So there's the medicine coming into play. There's the medicine coming into play. And so Father Lawrence is saying that I myself, as the wise individual, I know how I'm going to take these elements, Romeo and Juliet, and by combining them, create a medicine that cures everybody. But of course, the irony and the thing that Father Lawrence himself doesn't realize is that in, in order to do that to the elements, you need to crush and break them. So there's already this, there's this element that, that uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet, their death and being smelted, being broken down uh, is only going to be the way. And, and Father Lawrence, at the beginning of the book, he thinks that he's wise enough to be able to control these elements to his will. But of course, by the end, his hubris is that uh, it, it gets out of his control and this poison medicine is more volatile than he can handle and it ends very poorly with the death of Romeo and Juliet. But the families do come together. It so, makes pharmaceuticals sound way more exciting <laughs> way more than I think we give them credit for. And I, you know what? That's actually kind of true about the pharmaceutical industry is that it's kind of an exciting thing. They get a lot of their uh, – wasn't it morphine that came from poison frogs or snake no venom? Idea. Yeah, it's they, they get a lot of these substances from creatures that are deadly and poisonous and horrible. And that's where a lot of our medicines come from. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I wonder if there's any job like medicine adventurer and you're just supposed to catch I think you're an apothecary, creatures. right, at that point? Yeah, and I, maybe that has already passed that whole era. Yeah. But then, in, so in the metaphor of, of these plants, in it you sort of, you have the entire stakes of the book wrapped up. Now, we in 10th, when we're reading this in 10th grade, we wouldn't know this the first time we read it. But at the end, when you go back and you talk about this metaphor, in... This metaphor contains with it all of the seeds of some of the biggest themes of the story, which is um, the love of Romeo and Juliet being volatile, Father Lawrence thinking that he can use their high emotions to bring about other social change, um, and, uh, and also the fact, the, the sort of tragic irony that for Romeo and Juliet to be effective, they need to be combined in marriage, but there also needs to be this, like, destroying of the elements. You crush the herbs, you crush the plants to make the medicine, and Romeo and Juliet die to make this medicine. It's very tragic and sad. Mm. But there's, it's, it's very layered. So um, metaphors can be incredibly complicated, and the more that you can wrap your head around them, the more that they can become these great sort of gateways into the story of the text. And I'm beginning to realize that, like, understanding metaphors is really sort of transforming... Um, Bible study reading and looking for metaphors of scripture, I'm toying with this idea that like, well, we, we have the church is grafted onto the root of Jesse, right? Like there's a metaphor right there. And if we can understand what it means that we as the church have been grafted onto the story of the, of, uh, the Israelites of the Old Testament, I mean, there's just lots of great fruitful metaphors, pardon the pun, um, that can come from uh, that can come from these from this study of metaphors. So yeah, so and that's Jesus speaks in metaphors all the time. Parables right? are metaphors. Ab, Abba, Father. There's that one, and it continues to unfold in a Christian relationship. Mm -hmm. I, he he speaks partially in metaphors because 
the relationship we have with God is complicated. So he gives us marriage, he gives us fatherhood, he gives us, you know, kingship and subjectship, I guess, yeah. Citiz- I mean, citizenship, to help to communicate exactly how that relationship should In go. a real way, the only way we can talk about God, the thing that we cannot comprehend, the thing that we cannot wrap our hands around, is in metaphor. God is our Father. Well, that is a metaphor. God is um, uh, our King. That is, that, that's a metaphor, too. Um, and so by understanding that and the relationship, um, uh, uh, it can be a really sort of fruitful exercise to, uh, to, to ponder and think about. So you have the tenor, the thing oh, that's being the, talked about. The, well, hmm? I guess that's less of a metaphor and more of an actual occurrence. It's almost like a metaphor built into the history of the world, the, the tabernacle and the tearing of the veil, right? Yeah. The having God's presence in one space and then the veil is torn and that presence goes to all of us. It's... I mean, in many ways... Would you ways, consider that a metaphor? I, would, I, would, I even think that, like, the cross is, like, m- the pageantry of the story is metaphor made in history, right? Like, it is not it is not just a symbolic act. It is very real, taking away the sins of the world. But it is also this living metaphor that um, uh, it is saying something about... Um, the, the the death of of God, the death of, of of Jesus on the cross. That cross becomes this metaphor for the entire story of creation and of heaven breaking in. So yeah, the, the tearing of the veil mm-hmm. and and all these things. All of it is it carries such rich symbolic significance. But it's a sim. It's this metaphor that happened in history, which is always to me a very like exciting and humbling thing to think about. Yep. So tenor? as, as mm. C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Talked to wasn't it Tolkien that was having trouble with his faith and C.S. was like, well, he's the myth made history. He's the myth made history all That's... the way around. Tolkien said that. To oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so to to sum up, yeah. So tenor, uh, the thing being spoken about, the vehicle, the image, or the thing being used to talk about the tenor, and then the turn, all that you can say that you can, the depth that you can reach by uh, combining those two, maybe even unlike things. And then you can say something significant about about the tenor, saying something significant about, yeah, about what we're saying. Um, so that's it. That's metaphor right there. Yeah. And if you've heard any random little plinks in the background or clunks, it's because we have two students trying their very absolute best to be silent church mouses over in the corner as they play board games. That's true. This is we come. This podcast is live studio audience, and um, they're doing they're doing a very good job of being very quiet. And now they are completely. Beat red, both of them. All right. So now, I, <laughs> we should mention the email address. Oh, yeah. We actually have an email address now. It's classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. And that's it. So if you have questions or comments or you want to know more about something or you find a classical book confusing, maybe we can help. And send us, if you way. have podcast ideas, if you say, I really wish that they would talk about X, send it over. And if we like it, we'll do it. And if we don't like it, we won't do it. That's the truest thing you've said all day. (laughs) Okay, well, this is Classical Stuff Podcast signing off, and I can't think of a good metaphor to close this podcast with. Can you? Man, it's Friday. I'm so tired. Sleep, death, something about sleeping. All right, cool. Good job. Nailed it. Nailed it. See you later.